0: Father, how we praise you that you have spoken, not only through your prophets of old, and most of all through your Son, but that you, by your grace, have chosen down to to write your message to us in a book that we might read, so that we wouldn't be left to ourselves to know how to interpret life but rather we would see it through the lens of truth. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to see clearly through this lens of truth and to make whatever correction is necessary in our lives because of it. May it be to us like the North Star that guides us and never moves. And may it be for us a rock under our feet that cannot be shaken so that we can stand securely, even in the most difficult storms of life. Teach us, Father, to do that this morning through your word and for your glory. For we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, kind of toward the back side of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 12, and we will be reading, beginning with verse 4. Through verse 11, the author has just finished telling us and exhorting us, beginning with verse 1, that we are, as it were, in a race, and we are to run in such a way so as to win, and we are to shed anything from our lives that would keep us from running well, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who ran the race before us, and endured until the end, even though that meant suffering on a cross for crimes that he never committed in order to save those who have sinned and broken God's law. In verse 3 he says, For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We too are in this same kind of race. And now picking up with verse 4 you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all of us have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He, He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now let's take a few minutes to refresh here. The author of Hebrews is writing to a small Jewish church. They're a small Jewish church that is facing crisis. They're receiving persecution from the synagogues, from their family members, from those outside their community. Like every church, this is a group of people that consists both of true believers and religious unbelievers. Every church, including this church will have both true believers, true followers of God in Christ, and religious unbelievers. And all of them collectively have apparently made a profession of faith and allegiance to Christ. And that's easy to do when you're living in amiable times and when your culture and your government are friendly to that. But when the atmosphere, when the culture, when the government starts putting the squeeze on, it's natural to begin wondering, whether following Christ is really worth it. This is especially true for a church that suffered before, as this one had. The author recalls, you remember back in chapter 10, how in, pre- in the previous wave, wave of persecution, they, he says they showed sympathy to the prisoners, that is, their brothers in the Lord who had been arrested, like so many Christians around the world are arrested every day, in fact, by the way, let me just bring this home. You remember when we went to Kazakhstan, and we, uh, four of us went, and we uh, served a little bit there at the Bible Institute? The leader of that Bible Institute, whose name I won't announce for the world to hear, um, he is now in hiding with his students because of the Muslim government that is trying to shut down and destroy any influence that is not Muslim in that country. And so we need to pray for him. If you want his name, I'll give it to you after the service, but pray for him because he, like many around the world, like in Indonesia and in China and in places in Africa, the Sudan, where believers like you and me and pastors are being arrested and thrown in jail. And they would already experienced this before, this little church. They had already experienced that, and yet, even when some of them, perhaps their pastor, was taken and put in prison for his teaching and for his faith, yet they would visit him in prison. In chapter 10, verse 34, that's why he says, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your own property, knowing that you have a greater reward. But by this time, that was all history. That was something to glory in in the past. It's one thing to reminisce about former battles. It's quite another thing to think clearly and biblically about the trial you're in right now. When you're in the midst of it, when you're in the emotion of it, how do you respond? Uh, uh, how do you respond to that in a way that pleases the Lord? It's hard, and yet that's our calling. And there were some significant people, we learn, in the lives of these Hebrew believers who were beginning to openly question the wisdom of their committing to Christ. I imagine they would say things like, Come on, look what happened. Look what happened when you came to Christ, when you made this commitment to Jesus. Look at what's happened to you. You've turned your back on your family and your community to become a Christian, and all you've gotten in return are promises as well as many problems and suffering and heartache and criticism and hardship, you've lost all that is earthly, of any earthly importance to you and anybody else. And now these professing believers, some of them, were beginning to question their decision. Why do we have to suffer all the time? Isn't God supposed to be our provider and our protector? Aren't we supposed to be experiencing fulfillment in this life? Where's my best life now? Where's the reward? And the author begins by answering in verses 4 and 5, and this is where we camped out last week, so brief refresher here. In verses 4 and 5 of the text I just read, you recall last week that he begins by mentioning four common ways professing Christians respond poorly to their problems, and here they are. Verse 4, we tend to overestimate the degree of our suffering. That's what he's saying. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Come on, you haven't died on a cross yet. Let's cut the melodrama. Let's pull it all together here. You haven't really suffered that much. In verse 5, we neglect to bring God's word to bear on our suffering. And I think that's fundamentally where we go wrong most of the time. We forget the Bible. We forget that the Bible has any relevance. We walk out the door after Sunday morning worship service. We rejoice in what we've heard and what we've learned. And then we don't bring it to bear on our lives, on the difficult situations. And so we neglect to bring the word of God to bear. He says in verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation. And then he quotes out of Proverbs, right? And thirdly, we despise or we make light of God's promises for our sufferings. That's what he says again in verse 5. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly. Or if you have the King James Bible, it says do not despise, which I think is a better translation. In other words, when it's coming down on you, responding badly would look like this. God, why me? What have I done to deserve this? I mean, come on. I'm trying to live the best life I can live. I'm trying to be good to my kids and my family. Why me? This isn't fair. I don't like this. Who are you to do this to me? That's despising the discipline of the Lord. And and we we may have the tendency to fall off the beam the other way. Not despising or becoming angry at God, but again in verse 5, the second part of this verse, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. Some people, they just shut off when the when the trial comes, they, they just fall apart. They fall into a heap. It's useless. There's no use even trying to do what's right. I'm just overwhelmed. I can't stand under this. And then finally, we tend to misinterpret God's attitude about our suffering. Look at verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Now what we learn from all of this is that how we respond to difficulties and sufferings in life reveals the true substance of our faith. How we respond to difficulties and trials in life, even tragedy, reveals the true substance of our faith. That opposed, as opposed to the facade that we put on Sunday mornings. How you doing? Fine. Great. Doing wonderful. Lost my job. My wife and I are splitting up. But I'm doing great. I'm doing wonderful. And we do the same thing with our faith. We, we put on airs. You see, faith is not something that can be proven by words. Anybody. Anybody can say that they believe in God and trust in Christ, and millions do. Any rogue politician can say that they've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and many do, and many, well, some have this past week. Anybody can say that, but that's not where faith is proven. It's not where faith is proven. The surest test of our faith is not what we say we believe, but In how we respond to the day of trial. How we respond to our suffering. That will prove whether you believe God is real or not. Whether God is for you or against you. Whether God exists and is the rewarder of those who seek Him. Or whether God's just some celestial killjoy out to ruin your good time. The question then becomes... Will I be ruled by God's promises in the day of suffering? Or will I respond like every unbeliever responds? Again, I quote J.C. Ryle, who said, What you are in the day of trial is what you are, and nothing more. The surest test of whether a person truly believes in a bungee cord is will he step off the platform? The surest test of whether someone really trusts in a parachute is whether he's willing to strap it on and jump from the plane. And that's the way it is with our relationship with God. The surest test of whether someone genuinely believes in God is, will he be ruled by the promises of God in the day of suffering, or will he respond in that day like every unbeliever responds? In the day of suffering, unbelief tends to be, it tends to overestimate the degree of our suffering. Unbelief tends to neglect to bring God's word to bear on our suffering. Unbelief tends to make us despise or make light of God's purpose for our suffering. Or faint under the weight of our suffering. And then misinterpret God's attitude about our suffering. And it's a downward spiral. And in the end, you're just laid out. You're flat. There's no hope. There's no encouragement. There's no possibility of light at the end of the tunnel. If there is a light, it's another train. You're just doomed. But that's not the way God's people should respond to trial. That's not how followers of Christ respond. Then how should we respond? Well, there are three things God would have us learn from this text, at least three. But I'll give them to you. First, in the day of suffering... We must trust that God's discipline is fatherly. It is fatherly. Now, let me me just take an aside here and tell you that everything, everything I'm about to tell you is truth from His Word, that we need to learn to speak to our own hearts every time we face a circumstance that doesn't please us. And we've often said around here, That the primary reason or the primary cause of our failure to be what God wants us to be in this life, to be like Christ in this life, is because we listen to our hearts rather than speaking truth to our hearts. And we talk about this a lot around here because so many of us in the day of trial listen to your heart. And so you run or you do something dumb or you go out and get drunk or you... Fill in the blank. What do you do when something in life? Some people just blow up. Some people clam up. There's all manner of ways for us to inappropriately deal with trial. But how does God want us to address it? Well, let me tell you before I go into all these three things, that fundamentally this is what it means. In the day of trial, I don't listen to my heart because my heart wants me to run my heart is drawn by sin my heart wants me to do anything but please the Lord in that moment and so when you latch on to that truth and say okay I understand that what I should do in the day of trial is to bring truth to bear upon my heart now pastor tell me what truth should I bring to bear on my heart I'm gonna give you three of them and the first I've already stated we must learn to trust that God's discipline is fatherly. Now go back with me to verse 5, and we'll read this straight through to verse 8. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord, what's the next word? Loves he discipline. And he scourges every son, what? He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is dealing with you as what? Sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all of us have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. When you experience difficulty in your life, You've got to speak truth to your heart. You've got to say, soul, listen to me. I'm not going to listen to you. You listen to me. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you cast down within me? Put your hope in God. This difficulty, this unexpected trial, this thing that didn't go the way that I wanted it to go, like last night when I came home, rather late, and I reached for the light switch. I already had to load chairs in my car to make sure I got them here on time for Sunday school this morning. And I came in early, and I'm tired, and and it's it's pretty late, and all the kids are down. We've had a big night partying with my family because mom and dad's anniversary this weekend. And I'm turning off the lights, and I reach for the last light. I I reach over the countertop and flip the switch. It all goes dark. The, The house is now dark and i pull my hand back and touch a bottle of root beer a big bottle and someone i don't know who but someone didn't screw the cap on tight and it flipped off and hit the floor and exploded all over the kitchen and so my wife's ready waiting for me to come in i'm not coming in i'm not coming in i'm not coming in i'm, coming in. I'm out there scrubbing and washing the floor and you know what i'm thinking Lord, this isn't funny. (laughs) You know what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. This is not funny. (laughs) And even in this, Lord, your ways are perfect. We need to speak truth to our hearts. These suffering brothers have done what we often do. We forget the exhortation of God's Word relative to how we should interpret difficult circumstances in life. You see, God had already explained in His Word that when He permits difficulty in our lives, it's not because He hates us. It's not because He hates us. I mean, why does God tell us, I love you, I love you, I sent my son to die for you. I've done all these things because I love you. Why does he repeat that so many hundreds and hundreds of times in the the Word of God? This is why we are wired to think otherwise. We are wired to think he's mad at me, he doesn't like me, I never measure up to his standards. But it's not true. It's not true. He treats us like His children. He treats us like the perfect Father would treat His imperfect children. God had already explained in His Word that He doesn't hate us. It's not because He hates us that He permits difficulty in our lives. He even sends on occasion difficulty and trial into our lives. It's not even because He's angry with us. Rather, He allows it because He loves us like a father loves his children. Now, let me see a show of hands in here this morning. And you and the overflow participate here. Raise your hand if you're a dad. If you're a father, raise your hand. Okay, good. Lots of them. It's no surprise we've got so many children around here. We had a visitor came a couple weeks ago, and they said, Boy, there's so many children here, I think I almost stepped on one. If you're striving to be a good father to your children, then you understand this intuitively. You know, we get hung up on passages like this and we say, oh, boy, this is so negative. No, it's not. You fathers out there know this intuitively. Nobody has to explain this to you from Scripture. It comes hardwired into your system. When you become a father, you understand this. Just wait until your kids turn one or two. And then let me ask you a question. When your child turns two, how much work did you have to do to train your children to fight one another and to disobey your rules? You didn't have to do any kind of training. That's just hardwired in. And so we know intuitively that if anything is going to change there, it's going to require work. It's going to require the Greek word here for discipline, paideia. Pi meaning child, paideia meaning to train as training a child, whether you're a parent or a teacher or whatever it was in classical literature. It was the taking of a child and tenderly and forcefully and decisively with great love, bringing them from immaturity to maturity, from being utterly sinful and selfish to looking more like Christ. We know this. If you're striving to be a good father, you know this. You understand that to lead in your home is to be misunderstood. Let's say you're a father as a two-year-old girl that is deathly allergic to nuts. And you're at the grocery store and you're walking past... You're walking past the place where all the chocolate is, and you're trying to resist yourself, and your little darling little girl who's allergic to nuts reaches out and she swipes a Snickers bar. Daddy, I want this. And you tenderly take it from her hand. No, you can't have that, sweetie. Now, why are you doing that? Come on. I mean, all she wants is a candy bar. And so she gets upset. She starts kicking and flailing and engaging in every form of manipulative tactic that was hardwired into her little sinful heart. And yet you were resolute. In fact, you may not only not give her the candy, you may give her a spanking. You may take her to the car and deal with it and come back in and try again. Why? Because you hate her? You want her to live. You want to train her. There's things that you cannot eat because they're bad for you. They will kill you. And I love you. And I will not let you have something that will cause you harm. And I will spank you if necessary so that you will live. And that's the way it is. That's the way it is with God. And our relationship with God. That's the way it is with a Christian's relationship with the Father. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And He scourges every son whom He receives. Scourges is a hard word. I hesitated even to say this. But, I mean, how many of you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ? And you saw that scene where, and uh, and we didn't recommend it. But I know many of you saw it. But there is that one scene where they're flogging Jesus with the cat of nine tails. You know what that's called? Scourging. He scourges every son whom he receives. The word receives here is significant as well. It's used in the parable of Jesus, the parable of the sower, where he talks about the good soil that receives the seed, which in turn grows and produce, produces fruit. The sower casts the seed. Someone falls on the road, and the birds come and pick it up. And you remember the rocky soil and, and the weedy soil. And then there was good soil, and that soil was the one of the four that when the seed hit, it received it. And then it's also used, it's used in many places, but here's two times that we can kind of get our arms around um, it's used also of the reception of of, of God's receptive reception of us. Um, God Himself is is receiving us. He's joyfully receiving sinful men and women like you and me into fellowship with Him. The word is used to Paul when he went to meet the apostles. You remember, he's he's out doing ministry. To this point, the church had only been among the Jews. This was a Jewish gospel. This was a Jewish Messiah whom God had sent to proclaim the release of the captives, the acceptable year of the Lord and all that, salvation from our God. And then God called Paul to go to the Gentiles. That's you and me for the most part here. And yet people weren't too sure about the Gentiles. People weren't too sure about non-Jewish people being liked by God. That was really foreign. And so Paul had to go down to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem. And the text says, when they came and explained what God had done, the apostles received them into the fellowship. In other words, they included him in their relationship with one another. And what God is saying in this text is, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. He receives. God receives you. This is not the soil receiving a seed. It's not the apostles receiving another apostle. It is God Himself receiving. Listen. Listen. Receiving, holy God, receiving a sinner. And it's not just receiving him. The imagery here is like when a person goes to a foreign country, let's say Kazakhstan, and they go into an orphanage, and they choose for themselves a little boy or a little girl, and they adopt them into their home and receive them into their life. And begin treating that boy or girl like their own child. And even writing them into the inheritance. So that all that belongs to the father now belongs to his children. God disciplines everyone he receives. When you face hardship, it's not that God's angry at you. It's not that God hates you. It may very well be evidence that God loves you. It may very well be evidence that God has received you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, your suffering in this life does not mean God has rejected you. Rather, it means that He receives you. He permits and applies difficulty and then a measure of suffering because He loves us and absolutely knows what is best for us. Look at verses 7 and 8. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You see, beloved, fathers don't discipline other people's children. You'll never see me disciplining a child in this church doesn't it belong to me. That's the way it works. I'm responsible for my children. We only discipline those who we have received ourselves. And only illegitimate children go without discipline. Somebody asked me this week. He said, I know people whose life just seems, I mean, it's just, I know them really well and they're just, their life is just perfect. They've never gotten the bad news from the doctor. They've never seemed to have gotten bad news from their banker. They never get bad news from the tax man. They never get bad news from anybody. Life is just peachy. And I say, well, are they, are they believers? And they say, well, you know, they don't like to talk about their faith very much. And I'll say, well, you know, one of two things here. Either you don't know their life as well as you think they do, and that may be the case. Or maybe they don't know God. Maybe they are not yet sons of God. I had a brother last week call me up and say, this was so helpful to me because all my life, all the last couple of decades, I've thought that the reason that I had cancer was because God was mad at me. And this is a brother who strives to walk in the Spirit and you see the evidence of his love for God in his life. I mean, all he wants to talk about is the Lord, and yet he misunderstood God's love for him. He didn't see his relationship with God as father and son, and so he misinterpreted God's intentions. I thought he was mad at me. I thought he was punishing me. And what a joy it was for him to understand that God doesn't punish his children. He doesn't make them pay for their sin. Why? That's what Jesus' cross was about. All our sin was paid for on the cross. In my place condemned he stood. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, the prophet Isaiah said. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He does not make his children pay. But he disciplines us for our good. The word illegitimate here indicates that the father is not sufficiently interested in the child to inflict on him the discipline he needs. Only deadbeat dads neglect the discipline of their children. That's why the book of Proverbs says, he who spares the rod hates his son. And so when we experience various kinds of various kinds and various intensities of trial in this life, we need to remember that God's discipline is always fatherly. I'll never forget standing next to my mother, wondering if she's going to live or die in the hospital last fall. And family had come in and we're standing around her bed praying. And I asked my dad what he was thinking. And he said, I guess we either trust him or we don't. That's exactly right. It's exactly right. Will we trust him now? Second, in order to respond to suffering appropriately, we must not only trust that God's discipline is fatherly, but we must secondly trust that God's discipline is designed to produce change. God is out to change us. Verses 9 and 10. Read with me now. Furthermore, We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. This week has been a special week for my family. We celebrated my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and for this special occasion, as I told you, my sister, my brother, and his family flew in from out of state. My dad's brother flew in, and you know what? My sister and my brother have had it, uh, and myself have had some good time hanging out together, talking. Yesterday we went down to Dinosaur State Park and did a picnic together. I don't know what we'll we'll be doing tonight, but it'll be fun. We shared meals together. We've, we've had some good conversations. And you know it occurred to me last night as I was thinking about all this, that one of the most significant influences in our home growing up that has produced the kind of affection that we enjoy in being together as siblings is this. My dad didn't always give us what we wanted. Not only that, he often gave us what we hated to make us better than we were. And we enjoy the fruit of that today. Nobody does that perfectly except God. And that's his point here. Look at your own imperfect father. And what he attempted to do, and any fruit that's born from that that you enjoy today, and remember, God does that perfectly. For You're good. This is the way it is with a Christian's relationship with God. God disciplines us to bring about change. There are character flaws. There are harmful habits in our lives that are not good for us. We need to change. And God works to bring about that change the same way our earthly fathers worked to bring about that change. He disciplines us. Now this might be a good time to point out that the word discipline here means... Again, not punishment. Let's be reminded, but change. In fact, verse seven. Look at verse seven. He says, "This is kind of a strange phrase, especially if you've got a a New American Standard Bible." He says this: "It is for discipline that you endure." And I've read that even as I was preparing to preach this two weeks ago, I read that and I thought, "Oh, what does that mean? That that's it is for discipline that you endure. Um, It is." What does that mean? It means uh, it is for spanking that I endure. Gee, I want to be spanked, so I endure. Uh, I want trial, so I endure. What does that mean? If you understand here that the word for discipline is not punishment, but it's training It is for training that you endure. It is for training that you endure. In other words, we should endure the hardship remembering that God designed it to train us, or another way of saying it, to change us, to cause us to grow further in the likeness of Christ. That's not a bad thing. That's a glorious thing. That's what we want. We make it our ambition, right? Paul said, Second uh, Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our ambition whether at home or absent, that is, whether we're on earth or whether we've already died and gone to heaven, we make it our ambition whether at home or absent to be pleasing to the Lord. That's our number one ambition. And so when God brings something into our lives that's unpleasant, we need to speak truth to our hearts and say, listen, Heart, listen, soul, remember, God's discipline is always fatherly. And there is something in my life that he wants to change. Something in me that he wants to change or refine or sharpen in some way. He's not angry. He loves you. And the author is saying, you have great respect for your earthly father's training. Even though you didn't care for it at the time. Their discipline was imperfect, to say the very least. But God's discipline is always perfect. God, in His love, always wills what is best for us. God, in His wisdom, always knows what is best for us. And God, in His sovereignty, always has the power to do what is best for us. And therein lies our hope. And so his discipline is always perfect and is designed to produce in us good and necessary changes. Well, what changes? What changes might God be wanting to produce in us? I just jotted down some things. I don't have a lot of scripture here. We can talk about that later. You can probably think of some as we go. For example, God may be calling you to repent of sin. It may very well be that you're experiencing the discipline of correction in the sense that you know there's something that you're doing that God doesn't want you to do, and God's bringing it to your attention in living color. Or maybe that you know God wants you to do something that you're not willing to do, and God is going to get your attention because it's for your good and for his glory. Or God may be teaching me that he is trustworthy at all times, how many times have we experienced that since we began having children? All the difficulties, all the struggles. When we came here, we were paying more monthly, monthly payment. Uh, we were paying more for health insurance for one of our children, the only one who had any health, in- health insurance in our family. We were paying more for that than we were paying for our mortgage every month. And it was an impossible scenario. There's no way. I'll never forget the day we we owed uh, Children's Medical Center $300,000. And when I got the second bill, $98,000, I laughed. And my wife said, What are you laughing at? I said, It's going to take a miracle. (laughs) I can't wait to see what God's going to do with this. And you know what? A year or so later, it was gone. It was gone. That was 20 years' salary for me at the time. And it was gone. Why did God allow that in my life? There are a thousand reasons why, but I suspect one of them was to teach me, trust me. I will never let you down. Trust me. This is not a random act of insanity. I've designed this for your good. Just trust me. Do you trust me? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. We sang Psalm 93, right? You remember that part where it says, uh, He guides me in the paths of righteousness. We've talked about this before. In the Hebrew, you read that, and it says, He guides me down the right path. Even though it be through the valley of dark shadows, the valley of the shadow of death, how many times have we had to remind ourselves, how many times have you Many of you reminded me in the day of trial. Remember, Pastor Dan, this is the right path. This is the right path. It is because the Lord is my shepherd. I can trust Him. The Lord is my Father. He's teaching me to trust Him. Or maybe God may be revealing how much I need Him. Maybe we just forget How much we need Him, I mean, for our next breath, for the next pump of the heart, for the next meal, for whatever it is. I mean, you think about the people. I meant to bring this with me this morning because I heard from Bob Provost last night. who's talking about the brothers in Beslan. Remember that service where we stopped everything and all we did that morning was praise a few years back because of the terrorist attack in Beslan, Georgia over in the CIS, the former Soviet Union. And remember, there were over 300 children who were killed. And uh, there were two pastors, brothers, in that community. One of them lost two children and the other lost four. And they wrote and asked that we would pray, not that God would bring them back to life, not that God would uh, prosper them, but that God would use them to show the unbelievers in that community who lost children, that they can trust this God that they serve. Well, it's the same community now. You've got the conflict now with Russia and Georgia and the Assetians, and now that they are all have fled their hometowns and they've run for their lives, guess where they've gone? To Beslan. They're with all of these people who have faced tragedy, who have come to Christ, who have seen his glory in it, and are prepared now to share Christ with them and to meet their needs. In fact, you can talk to me about about this afterwards. They're pleading with us, first of all, that we'll pray. They're pleading with us, secondly, that if anyone through the appropriate channels can uh, send the appropriate funds to help them with medical supplies and all the things that they need, to minister in that community, they would be deeply grateful. But sometimes God teaches us that we need Him. Sometimes God may be using our suffering to encourage others. Sometimes God may be drawing someone to salvation through my faithfulness in the midst of sorrow or through your faithfulness in the midst of sorrow. God is most glorified in us when in the midst of suffering we are being faithful and joyful. God may be weaning me from my love of the world so that I would know the joy of loving Christ above all else. God may be protecting me from a sinful attitude or habit. Remember the Apostle Paul mentioned this last week. We talked about his thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times that God would deliver. And God said, "My, uh, my grace is sufficient for you. And later on, Paul explains why God did that. He did that to keep me from becoming proud. Because of God's special attention given to Paul. God may be protecting me from a sinful habit or attitude. Or God may be bringing me to my eternal reward. This sickness may be unto death. To live as Christ. To die is gain. We'll never know all the reasons for our suffering. God has 10,000 reasons for everything He does. Responding properly simply means that in the midst of the trial... I trust that He has designed it to change me. And more specifically, that He's designed it to make me more holy, to make me more like Christ. And that's why He says at the end of verse 10, "But He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. And so responding faithfully to trial means we trust that God's discipline is fatherly. We trust that God's discipline is designed to produce change in our lives. And finally, and very briefly, responding faithfully to trial and suffering means that we trust that God's discipline promises reward. And we've seen that all the way through the book of Hebrews. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Hebrews eleven six. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. You've got to You've got to believe that he's there first and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so press on for the reward. Be faithful for God's glory in the reward. And so he says, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Notice the word seems here. Things are not always as they seem. In every difficulty, every trial, we must remind ourselves things are not as they seem. This that is happening to me really is happening, but there's more going on here than what I can imagine. We sometimes do not intuitively judge things as they really are. Discipline never seems joyful. But it has a joyful goal in mind. It has the ultimate happiness of the child of God in mind. Notice too, however, that not everyone will experience the joyful results from the Father's perfect discipline. Not every believer will experience joyful results from the Father's discipline. Well, then who will? He tells us only those who have been trained by it. They will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The implication is that some, perhaps many, will resist the discipline of the Lord. They'll either faint or they'll despise it, one or the other, and they will not be changed by it at all. It won't drive them to God. It'll drive them to anger or depression or something else, but not to God. They will, in fact, despise it or faint under it. Faith, however, responds by realizing that the all-sovereign, all-wise, all-loving God has designed every trial to bring about some good thing in the lives of those whom he loves. And that's why Hebrews 11.1, faith, what's it say? I'm going to flip there. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, what? Not seen. And that means... Conviction that God's promises are true. Now, notice here he uses the word trained. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained. You know what the Greek word here is? It's gymnazo. gymnazo. It's, it's the word from which we get our English gymnasium. And so here he's referring back perhaps to what he said at the beginning about the race. It pictures the difficult training of an athlete willingly enduring all of his suffering in order to make himself a champion in the games. He knows that everything his trainer requires of him to eat and when to sleep and when to swim or run and when to rest and when to get up and push it harder until it hurts. All of it is designed, it's designed by the coach. To make him into a champion. It's not simply for the sake of change, but with a goal in mind. And the goal is I'm going for the gold. I'm going to the Olympics, and I'm training to win. And that's the way Paul says we should approach our life as believers, enduring hardship as discipline, as training. And that's what we see throughout history. Faithful believers who have shaken the world by their faithfulness. You think of Hudson Taylor. You know where the church is growing faster and with more stability than anywhere else in the world? China. Now, the church is growing in Africa by leaps and bounds to far more than here in the United States, but nothing compares to China. And there are some places where they just, it's illegal. They're not supposed to be doing that. The government tries to keep a lid on that. But you know where the church really got kicked off? It wasn't any time recently. It was more than 100 years ago when a faithful brother by the name of Hudson Taylor went to China to take the gospel and teach them why the Lord Jesus died, and how they would benefit from that. And as he began his ministry, it became evident that he was going to suffer. He didn't know anyone. He suffered hardship. He suffered hunger. He had to sleep off and out in the cold and in the rain. And yet at the end of his life, this is what he writes. He says, The great enemy is always ready with his often repeated suggestion. All these things are against me. But oh, how false the Word! The cold and even hunger and watchings and sleeplessness of nights of danger and the feeling at times of utter isolation and helplessness were well and wisely chosen and tenderly and lovingly meted out. What circumstance could have rendered the Word of God sweeter and the presence of God more real, the help of God so precious to me than these... They were times indeed of emptying and humbling, but were experiences that made not ashamed and that strengthened purpose to go forward as God might direct and His promise, and His, and his proved promise, I will never fail thee, nor will I forsake thee. Now, there's a man who suffered for the cause of Christ more than anything we can even imagine. Alexander Sultanitsyn is another one. We would never have known very much about the atrocities in Stalin's Russia if Alexander Solzhenitsyn had not come out of the gulag and written his book. Having suffered a long, horrific imprisonment in Stalin's Russian gulag, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who just died, I think, two weeks ago, after explaining those years of terror and how God used them to bring him to Christ, he wrote these words... That is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment and say, sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, Bless you, prison. I have served enough time there. I nourished my soul there. I say without hesitation, bless you, prison, for having been in my life. And King David says this, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. The prophet Hosea says it best, perhaps, when he writes these words, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will receive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. If you're listening to me right now, and perhaps the first time in your life, it's making sense why God has allowed all the suffering in your life. You don't know him. You don't know him. And you may be thinking, how can I know him? What does this message have for me? The message for you is this, repent and believe. And here's why. Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf. That you might be called the righteousness of God in him. Paul said that. And this is what he means. When Jesus died on the cross thousand years ago. God did that to him. The nails in his feet and hands, the crown of thorns, the spear in his side. God did that to him. He was treating Jesus as if he lived my sinful, wicked, rebellious life. And he did it for this purpose. He treated Jesus as if he had lived my sinful, wicked, rebellious life so that he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect and holy life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so turn from your sin and receive this one who would be your adopted heavenly father and become a part of his family by faith. And if you are a child of God, well, this is what God says to you. Repent and believe as on the day that you first came to know Christ. Someone has written, and so what do I say? I say, let the rains of disappointment come if they water the plants of spiritual grace. Let the winds of adversity blow if they serve to root, if they sever the root more securely, the trees that God has planted. I say, let the sun of prosperity be eclipsed. If that brings me closer to the true light of life, welcome, sweet discipline. Discipline designed for my joy. Discipline designed to make me what God wants of me. Welcome. Welcome. Responding to hardship by faith is made much easier, beloved, by speaking truth to our hearts and recalling God's fatherly intentions and care for those who, Who love him. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father we give you thanks and praise this morning. That you are our father by grace. And that you lovingly guide us. And you arrange for our lives. To be led though unexpectedly. Yet you as our shepherd always lead us down the right path. Give us grace to trust you in it and use it to change us and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in us so that others would believe and receive in themselves what we have found in him. May you be glorified and may your people know the joy that you have promised for we pray it by the authority of Jesus name.